Well, the theme this morning for the sermon is suffering, sovereignty, and the salvation of God. And I chose this passage because of what's going on in the life of our church in these days with suffering. And this text uniquely teaches us, I think, how to respond to suffering when God doesn't intervene immediately and how to respond in the midst of his apparent silence and what he's up to when he leads his children into suffering. So this morning, I want to try to give us comfort from God's word in light of many of the things that Pastor Jonathan has mentioned, the deaths of some of our friends and dear brothers and sisters, the medical scares that we've experienced with Titus and even Pastor Ted's recent diagnosis. So this morning, let's let's talk about suffering, but let's see in this passage great hope and great purpose from God that he gives to us in the midst of suffering that enables us to not only endure it, but to prosper in and through it. First point this morning is I want us to look at the presence of suffering as a reality for God's children and God's people. We do pick up the story right in the middle of an account in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas have gone to Philippi. This is the origins of the church of Philippi, which received a letter from Paul, which we call the book of Philippians. This is the this is the origin of that church. And if you remember earlier in the chapter, they receive a, a Macedonian call, a call that from the Holy Spirit that calls them to come and visit this area. And Philippi was a leading district in Macedonia, we're told by Luke here in Acts 16. And as they arrive and they begin spending some time in the city, they meet a, a woman named Lydia, who's from the city of Thyatira, and she's converted through the preaching of the gospel. God's God, the, the, the Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that God opened her heart to receive the things that were spoken by Paul, no doubt the gospel message, and she becomes a believer and she is baptized in verse 15. And then as they're going to a place of prayer, they encounter a slave girl and they cast demons out of her. And this this is happening in the midst of, of the gospel coming to Philippi. And God is beginning to stir things up and the Holy Spirit's beginning to move. And as a result of this conversion and and this the, these demons being cast out, the city just gets completely converted and turned upside down. And is that what happens? No. Paul and Silas are going to jail. And so, brothers and sisters, in the midst of suffering, I want you to understand something that God often calls his people in the midst of his work and his activity to endure suffering for his sake. Do not think suffering happens only on the path of disobedience. It happens on the path of obedience. As Paul and Silas experienced their Beaten with rods, we're told in verse 22, and then they have many blows inflicted upon them and they're thrown into prison and have their feet fastened in stocks. But notice what also happens. God intervenes, right? In the midst of their suffering, he sends an earthquake such that the doors are opened and everyone's bonds are unfastened and it's violent and earth shattering enough to where the jailer himself feeling like The prisoners are going to escape, and he's about to die anyway. He's going to take his own life. 
But Paul cries out and says, don't, don't do any, don't do anything. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer asks what he must do to be saved. And Paul reminds him and preaches the gospel to him, which is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the jailer is saved and his household is converted. And so what's amazing about this story, though, is where the intervention takes place. God's intervention doesn't happen when Paul and Silas are being beaten. God's intervention happens when they're in jail after they've been beaten. So was God not able to deliver them from the beatings? Was God not able to intervene when they first arrived at Philippi? And after these many days have experienced being dragged into the marketplace before the rulers and seized and put in I mean, was God not able to intervene then? No, of course he was able to intervene. And he chose not to intervene. He could have intervened in verses 19 through 24, but he waited to intervene till verse 26. We see similar themes like this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read, About that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So James dies, but a few verses later, we see in the story how he arrested Peter too for the same purpose, but God intervened and miraculously delivered Peter. Why didn't he deliver James? Why was James just as much a disciple of Jesus, just as much an apostle, just as much someone who was committed to following Christ as Peter was? One dies in faith and one escapes in faith. Our God is sovereign over the dispensation of suffering into the lives of his children. We also see it in Hebrews chapter 11. Time spares us reading the whole passage. But we see in that passage these great reminders of God's activity and intervention in the life of his people, crossing the Red Sea and the Exodus, the walls of Jericho falling down, Rahab, the prostitute avoiding perishing, and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all these conquering kingdoms, it says, verse 33, enforcing justice, obtaining promises, stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the power of the fire, escaping the edge of the sword, becoming mighty in war being made strong out of weakness, putting foreign armies to flight, women receiving back their dead by resurrection. All these amazing activities of God's intervention. And then in the very next verse we read, but some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Those were God's people too. So the point that I'm trying to make under this first point of the presence of suffering is that God does intervene to stop the suffering of his children. And we should pray for that. God does and can work miracles, stop suffering. And he sometimes does. He doesn't always though. And we don't need to let that cause us to doubt him. Rather, this is the way his sovereignty unfolds. He will not be trapped by our wisdom. He will not be forced into a box by us. He will do with us according to his good pleasure. And as his people, that's where we want to be, is right in the middle of God's good pleasure. John Bloom writes, God can be mattingly, mattingly hard to get, 
When God says that his ways are not our ways, he really means it. We have these encounters with him where he breaks into our lives with power and answers our prayers and wins our trust and waters the garden of our faith, making it lush and green. And then there are these seasons when chaos careens in with apparent carelessness through our lives and the world leaving us shattered. Or an unrelenting darkness descends or an arid wind we don't even understand blows across our spiritual landscape, leaving the crust of our soul cracked and parched. And we cry to God in our confused anguish, and he just seems silent. He just seems absent. So how are we to respond? How are we to respond in light of God's sovereignty in ordaining our days and our suffering? How should we respond? Second point, the posture of suffering. Talked about the presence. Let's see the posture. Notice how Silas and Paul respond in verse 25 after they are put in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What in the world? Shouldn't they be railing against God? Shouldn't they be questioning God? No, they're trusting God. They're trusting God. When they don't get what they expected... Which they they weren't expecting these sorts of things. Now Paul is told, and the Holy Spirit does speak to Paul and say, you know, he assures him that there are many afflictions that await him and chains and imprisonment await him. So he's aware of that that in a general sense, but he doesn't know exactly when it's going to come. But he encounters it here. They're in prison, and they respond by praying and singing hymns to God. You know, this is not natural. (laughs) This is supernatural. Sometimes we struggle to pray and sing when we suffer, don't we? It's like the last thing we want to do because we have a tendency to doubt or question God. Andrew Peterson's song, The Silence of God, expresses this difficulty with us as God's children. When he says, it's enough to drive a man crazy, it'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Rich Mullins Also, writing in his song, Hard to Get, says, Do you remember when you lived down here where we all scraped to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Do you forget about us after you had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said. Still, I'm so scared I'm holding my breath while you're up there just playing hard to get. It's that gut-wrenching, transparent, psalm-like honesty that I appreciate about Andrew and Rich Mullins. Don't, don't, Don't mistake it. Those men are full of faith, but they're wrestling with what experience seems to be teaching them, which is contrary to what they perceive God's promises to be. All of God's saints, if we live long enough, are led into lonely, disorienting, weary wildernesses. Job said in Job 30, verse 20, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. King David said in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. In reality, was God absent or silent or indifferent at all toward Job or King David? No, it's just how they felt at the time. Nor in reality, was God silent toward Andrew Peterson or playing hard to get with Rich Mullins? And when we feel forsaken by God, we are not forsaken by God. Hebrews 13.5 assures us that he will never leave us 
and that he is he will never forsake us. We are simply called to trust his promise more than our perception. And that's what leads these, Paul and Silas, our brothers here, in this passage to be able to sing and pray in the midst of prison. Because they're trusting God's promises, not their perception. They're trusting God's ways instead of their perception of what God's ways should be. They are trusting Isaiah 55 that his ways are indeed higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And they are trusting that they will never be left or forsaken. And they are trusting that as we pass through the waters, he will be with us and the rivers will not overcome us. And that we do not need to be dismayed or fear because he is with us. We sometimes just need language for prayer, don't we? We need language to express express how we feel. And here's a helpful prayer from Scotty Smith reflecting on this is something that this is, when I read it this week, I just thought that sounds like something Paul and Silas would have prayed while they were in prison. So let me share it with you. He said, I'm in constant need of bowing my knees and acknowledging your sovereign rule over all things. I'm very thankful you are God and I am not. Forgive me when I think less of you and otherwise of me or of anybody else. Father, I'm glad you do as you please and not as we beg you to do. I've lived long enough to praise you for some of the no's I've received to prayers for which I desperately wanted a yes. You do all things well, not easy. But in time, you will make all things beautiful. Give me grace in this day to wait for that day. He goes on and concludes the prayer by saying, I'm grateful to affirm that Jesus has the hearts of all in his hand. And that you not only care for birds and fields, but for me and people I love. And that nothing can happen apart from your sovereign decrees and eternal delight. Forgive me when I doubt your faithfulness. And grant me grace when I struggle with your hiddenness. Isaac Watts expressed this as well. Pastor Ted gave me a copy of this hymn. He he referenced it in a recent meeting we were having and talking. And it just struck me as very applicable to this whole message. To him by Isaac Watts that he wrote based upon Job 121. And it's entitled Submission to Afflictive Providences. And he writes, Naked as from the earth we came and crept to life at first. We to the earth return again and mingle with our dust. The dear delights we hear and joy and fondly call our own are but short favors borrowed now to be repaid anon. Tis God that lifts our comforts high. Or sinks them in the grave. He gives and blessed be his name. He takes but what he gave. Peace all our angry passions then. Let each rebellious sigh. Be silent at his sovereign will. And every murmur die. If smiling mercy crown our lives. Its praises shall be spread. And we'll adore the justice too. That strikes our comforts dead. That's that's a guy who loves God. <laughs> More than the circumstances that God gives. And this we see reflected in Paul and Silas. These are men that love Jesus. And they consider him worthy of their worship as they sit in prison as a result of being obedient to him. And preaching his gospel and going where his spirit leads. How can we pray and sing in the midst of uncertainty? Because he's worthy. That's why. He's worth more than what life can give now or death can take later. 
To know Christ is to have eternal, indestructible, death-defying, hell-defeating, resurrection-promising life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And trusting His promises more than our perception will give us plenty of reasons to pray and sing. Especially since God has such good purposes for our suffering. And to that we now turn in our final point. So we've seen the We've seen the presence of suffering. We've seen our posture in the midst of it. We should pray and sing. But we pray and sing ultimately because we know God has good purposes in our suffering. Now, we seldom know the micro reasons for our suffering. That is the specific individual circumstances and all of that. God often doesn't reveal that to us. But what he does reveal to us is his macro reasons. The big picture, the 30,000 foot reasons. And this is more than enough, more than adequate to fill us with faith and sustain us in the midst of our suffering. And I just want to focus on two that are brought out in this passage. Two purposes that we see for why God sends suffering into the life of his children. And the first one is this, so that people would be saved. So that people will be saved. Notice what happened. If Paul and Silas were never sent to prison, humanly speaking, the jailer and his household would not have been converted. God was willing to put his children through suffering that he might save some of his children. God was willing to cause his found children to suffer that his lost children might be saved. Are you okay with that? You have to be okay with that. We God often saves people through suffering. And the suffering of people who are who are not yet or who are already his children that those who are not yet his children might be saved. God doesn't save anybody apart from suffering. This is why Jesus came. Jesus had to suffer that we might be saved. He had to take upon himself a willingness to give himself over to the consequences of our sin and the payment of our penalty and our death so that we might be raised to newness of life, forgiven, adopted into the family of God and receive eternal life. And this is the pattern that we have. A disciple is not above his teacher and a servant is not above his master. Paul got this and he reminded us of it over and over again. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul says what his whole mission is about. It's to go out and to reach people with the gospel, to teach them, to train them, to bring them to maturity in Christ. And to this end, he labors and struggles with all his energy, God's energy, which so powerfully works within him. That's his goal. Present people, mature in Christ, reach them with Christ, disciple them up into Christ, equip them. But three verses later, he tells them, that I am in my flesh filling up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. That is, I'm giving myself over to suffering so that these people might be brought to Jesus. I'm inconveniencing myself. I'm taking up my cross. I'm denying myself that others might be saved. Second Timothy 2.10 is crystal clear. I endure all things for the sake of God's elect. That through suffering... They might be 
reached. He endured it all. He endured suffering for their sake. Let me give you an illustration of where we see this unfold in church history. There was a story told, this is many years ago now, of a Maasai warrior named Joseph. And his story was so powerful that many years ago it won him a hearing with Billy Graham himself because Billy wanted to actually hear from this man what God did in and through him to save others. Listen to this story. It's told by Michael Card. One day, Joseph, who was walking along one of those hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him, held him to the ground, while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he'd received from the people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. You know why they came to Christ? Because they saw in that man something worth dying for. That's why. They said, what must, how valuable must this Jesus be if his people are willing to endure all of this? For his sake, how worthy of obedience and worship. What has he done for this man? He's forgiven his sin. He's forgiven his sin. And so what we see there is a practical example of what is happening here in the book of Acts. That through the suffering of God's people, salvation is coming. And let it not, let me, we know enough about suffering and God's people in scripture that, that, that we don't need to think that, you know, we have to have a story exactly like Paul and Silas or exactly like Joseph the Messiah warrior. Like, if I'm not doing that, God's not using my suffering for salvation. Not true. 
We have already seen it in the life of our church. People have gotten saved through the death of Christians around here. They get impacted. They get they hear of the gospel and what Jesus did in their life at a funeral and they're converted. We've seen it happen. We saw it happen with the death of Gary Lawless. We saw it happen with the death of Sean Golly. We saw it happen. We're hoping we'll see it happen with the death of Joy Malone. God doesn't waste any of his children's suffering. And he always uses it for the greatest desire of his children, which is that others might be brought into the kingdom of God. That is the great desire of God's children, is that others might be reconciled to God as a result of their life. We who are reconciled receive the ministry of reconciliation, and our desire, our great desire, is that the Lord would do in us and through us whatever it takes to get others reconciled to Him. There's a second reason for suffering, not only the salvation of the lost, but for the strengthening of the church. The strengthening of the church. And we see this again in this chapter of Acts. We stopped reading at verse 31, but I just want to, I just want to pick up and, and kind of do a flyover, but what happens is they eventually get out and they're eventually released and the magistrates let them go and they realize the police reported back the word of the magistrates in verse 38. They're afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens. So Paul and Silas used the, the legal system, which is wise and good to, to procure. And this teaches us something too. They're not fatalistic. They're not deterministic. God's, God's children, when they suffer, we should as, we should pray for God's intervention. We, we're not fatalists here. We're not like, well, God's sending suffering. It's probably bad. No, we pray, we sing, we ask God to intervene, we ask God to move, we trust Him that He's gonna work, and we use every means at our disposal that He provides to try to alleviate the suffering. But we don't do it in disobedience. We don't do it as a path out. Notice, they're singing and praying hymns. They're, they're trusting. They're, they're praying and singing hymns. And trusting God. God sends the earthquake. They, they don't just run out. Like, oh, God's... No. They, they're they worried about the, the jailer and what he might do to himself. And so they, they pause and they're entrusting themselves to the Lord. But notice, verse 40. They went out of the prison and visited Lydia. The woman who was converted when they first arrived in Philippi, or very soon after they arrived in Philippi. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So what was all this suffering for? Was it just for the saving of the lost? No, it was for the strengthening of Lydia, a new convert who needed to know that God was going to be there for her in the midst of suffering. And so Paul and Silas walked through it. They no doubt sat down with Lydia and said, let me tell you what the Lord has done. We were arrested. We were beaten. We were put in jail. God sent an earthquake. Jailer and his family got converted. Now we're out. We're here to tell you about that. And she's no doubt really encouraged about that, about hearing that. Similar story happens just a couple of chapters earlier in Acts 14. Verse 19 says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city on the next day and he went on with Barnabas to Derby. 
when they preached the gospel to that city and had many disciple had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this suffering, again, that Paul had experienced, this stoning, which is probably worse than the beating with rods he received in Philippi, because it says it was he was on the verge of death. I mean, they looked at him, they thought he was dead. But he God used that, and he preached the gospel, and he went about, in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What's the point? Suffering, when God gives suffering to a church or a season of suffering to a church, God is using that suffering of his devoted, his, of his devoted children to strengthen the church and to wake up a sleeping church. That's what he's doing. He's calling us to not coast through life. But eternity is here. Eternal, eternal realities are at stake. Philippians 1.14, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So when God's, so when Paul's in prison, people get bold and start sharing Jesus again. You would think that it would be the opposite. Okay, so Paul went to prison. Okay, how do you go to prison? Oh, he's preaching Jesus. Okay, we better not do that. No, but what happens is they hear about Paul preaching Jesus and that he's in prison and fruitful and happy and they're like, we better get to, to preaching Jesus. That's what God does in sending the suffering, sending suffering to a church or to his people. Henry Martin, a friend of David Brainerd, who had a profound effect. Young David Brainerd lived a couple hundred years ago. His life was very short. He died in his 20s. But Henry Martin recorded Brainerd's impact on his life in his journal. And he wrote the following, just talking about how suffering is used by God to, to strengthen the church. Here's what Henry Martin wrote on September 11th, 1805. He said, what a quickening example has been often, he has often been to me, especially on this account that he was so weak and sickly. May 8th, 1806, Martin wrote about David's memory. Blessed be the memory of that holy man. I feel happy that I shall have his book with me in India and thus enjoy in a manner the benefit of his company and example. May 12th, 1806, four days later, he wrote, my soul was revived today through God's never-ceasing compassion so that I found the re- refreshing presence of God in secret duties, especially was I most abundantly encouraged by reading David Brainerd's account of the difficulties attending a mission. Oh, blessed be the memory of that beloved saint. No uninspired writer ever did me so much good. I felt most sweetly joyful to labor amongst the poor natives here, and my willingness was, I think, more divested of those romantic notions which have sometimes inflated me with false spirits. So he's like, David's example told me it's hard to be a missionary, but it's also incredibly joyful. And so it was that example that led Henry Martin to India to engage in mission. One final example of how the suffering of a child of God strengthens and equips the church. Chet Bitterman was a Wycliffe missionary, and he was killed by a Colombian guerrilla group on March 6, 1981. Chet had been in captivity for seven weeks while his wife Brenda and little daughters Anna and Esther waited in Bogota, Colombia. And the demand of the militia group, which was called the M-19, was that Wycliffe get out of Colombia. 
No more Bible translation. We don't want your missionaries. It says, they shot him just before dawn, a single bullet to the chest. Police found his body in the bus where he died in a parking lot in the south of town. He was clean and shaven, his face relaxed. A guerrilla banner wrapped his remains. There were no signs of torture. And in the year following Chet's death, guess what happened? Applications for overseas service with Whitcliffe Bible translators doubled. The trend was continued. It was not the kind of missionary mobilization that any of us would choose, but it is God's way. John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, church, as I close here, I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who's in the place of the jailer. Is anyone here this morning who is outside of Jesus Christ? Is anyone here this morning who... If you were right now to die and go face Jesus yourself, that he would say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, my child, enter into the joy of your master. Do you know him? Do you walk with him? Are you obedient to him? Well, if not, let this text this morning be the text that leads you to Jesus. Because it says right now that you, even though you might find yourself in the place of someone who is not yet a Christian, like the Philippian jailer, nevertheless, you've heard about this Jesus. You've heard of his worthiness to be lived for and died for. And you've heard that this Jesus came to earth, sacrificing everything, submitting himself to suffering, not only physical suffering, but emotional, spiritual suffering, so that he could spend 33 years on this earth working out a perfect righteousness, which you or nor I nor anyone else has, which will only, which God requires to get into his presence and, and pass his bar of justice. That Jesus has already lived has already died and has already been resurrected. And that gospel is being preached to you this morning. And you are invited to right now bow your head, receive Christ into your life. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means you're relying all of your sin and need for forgiveness and guilt and payment for sin and the and, and future in hell and death and all that, you're relying completely on Jesus. And when you believe on him, you are, according to the book of Acts, set free from everything you cannot be set free from by the law. Your obedience is not going to cut it, but Jesus' obedience will. And you can rely on him and believe in him and trust in him right now and you will be adopted into his family. You don't have to work for it. This is not a good advice sermon. This is a good news sermon. Christianity is about good news, not good advice. It's not about, it's not about making you a better person or being better morally or turning over a new leaf or just trying to improve. It has nothing to do with that. You're not the good person in the Christian story. Jesus is. And he will gladly give you Everything that you lack as a free gift by faith alone. Just believing and receiving it. But you must be willing to take up your cross and follow him. And if it, because of his lavish grace to forgive us, church, of so much, 
and to continue in an ongoing way forgiving us and providing for us and taking care of us, then we as his people say with Paul that there is surpassing value in knowing Christ Jesus our Lord for which we would suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that we may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. May it be yours, and may it encourage you as you trust your Father in everything that he gives for our good, including the suffering that he works for good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us before the foundation of the world and choosing us in Christ that we might believe in him and believe on him. We acknowledge before you this morning that we are worthy of none of the least of your mercies toward us. And we are debtors to grace. And we are thankful that we get to worship you and respond to you now because of the greatness of your salvation. Oh, how great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. Strengthen your church this morning. Strengthen us as your people. Thank you that you are sovereign that you are in control of everything, every molecule. We pray for our pastor, Ted, that you would intervene in his life. You're able to do that right now even. That, God, you are able. You are the one who invaded that Philippian prison and rocked it with an earthquake. And you can intervene, and we pray that you would do that. We pray that in our lesser sufferings and in other areas where we are suffering as a body that are unspoken right now that we may not, that that no one may know of other than the person or the brother or sister who's sitting before you right now, that you would intervene, God, that you would speak the word, that you would move your hand, that you would bless us in this season of pursuing you through prayer and fasting, that you would manifest your presence among us. Not just your healing presence, although we pray for that, but also your sanctifying presence and your emboldening presence and the presence that frees us from fear and it enables us to trust you with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge you, knowing that you will direct our steps and make our path straight. So God, how we thank you that you love us. Oh, how you love your children. And oh, how you care for us in the midst of our suffering. And oh, how you take it upon yourself to know what it is to suffer as a man, Lord Jesus. You know what it is. You're not some distant, aloof deity dispensing random, fatal afflictions upon your children. No, you are near. And every affliction that you send to your children, you promise to repay ten thousandfold in the age to come. And we thank you that it's that it's always working for a good purpose, for the salvation of the lost and for the strengthening of your church. Oh, how we pray that the city of Owensboro, that people in this city that need the salvation of Jesus would experience it, even if it means it comes through the suffering of your people. May your church grow. May your church be strengthened. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. We ask all this in your name.